Welcome to the Slowing Down Podcast. I'm your host, Janna Slow Akimova. Today, I speak with Chloe S., who is a certified digital wellness coach and founder of This Too Shall Grow. In today's episode, we talk about algorithmic influence on our behavior, the dark side of personalization, digital well-being and how we can improve our relationships with digital tools. Also, we argue if mind is limited or unlimited. In any case, it was a mind-expanding conversation for me and I hope it'll be for you. Without further ado, please welcome. I'm Chloe. I founded This Social Grow. What I want to do with This Social Grow is helping people with their digital well-being and with building better tech. And there's a bunch of ways that I try to do that. So one of them is coaching. I took a coaching certification in digital well-being. Another one is writing through articles and newsletter, writing about these topics and sharing other people's writings, having lovely conversations on podcasts, and in the future, probably offering workshops. So that's what I'm trying to do. Wonderful. What's your background? Uh, where are you coming from? And why did you decide to tap into digital well-being and writings? When I was in primary school, I wanted to be a psychologist, <laughs> but I actually studied business. I did a business school and then I specialized in digital business. So my background is in tech. I've had several roles, mostly UX researcher and UX designer. And about two and a half years ago, I decided to create this to show grow and have my own website where I write about how to design tech products that are better for users' well-being and mental health and privacy. And then more recently, I added the other side of that coin, which is how anyone who has a digital device can use it in a way that serves them better. It's like uh, digital hygiene or? Yeah, you, you could call it definitely digital hygiene, digital well-being, something like that. I was actually curious about the name of uh, the website, This Too Shall Grow. Where is the name coming from? Mm, that's a good question. I liked the idea behind the expression, these two shall pass, because it's inexorable, right? This will pass, whatever um, this is. And I liked pairing that with the idea of growth, of improvement, improving our tech, improving our lives. So that's the idea behind this two shall grow. Passing and growing. <laughs> That's like a meditation in a way. <laughs> I remember when I took a course on business for yoga teachers, because yoga teachers are so terrible at business. <laughs> we were told that in business, you will encounter your worst possible sides and you will deal with all your psychological issues. Do you feel that there is a connection between psychology and business? Yeah, I think there is something that is very intimately paired with having a business or some sort of entrepreneurial project or just being an online creator, whatever that might mean for one person or another. You have to be a bit naked. <laughs> you have to be somewhat vulnerable. You can choose not to be and like completely, you know, 
having a facade but yeah if you want to do it like in an um, authentic way let's say mm-hmm. yeah you're gonna have to be a bit naked and show off yourself even if you're not talking about yourself but what you're gonna write about or how you're gonna write about it is gonna show off yourself so Mm-hmm. To go back to what you were saying about psychology, I think something that people who create online have to deal with is possibility of rejection and comparison, like comparing yourself to others who are succeeding differently or better in some way, not as well in other ways. But that's a good step to go through. Yeah, it's tough sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, being naked and also comparing yourself with other naked creators. (laughs) (laughs) And I like in a way that it forces you to go through that and then to accept your own path, Mm -hmm. more gentleness. Is there like some sort of like interference in the internet maybe um, when there's too much of follow this path, this is the only path, or this is the shortest way to get successful or something like that, like the informational field, which is maybe even negatively, if we talk about psychology, negatively impact creators? You know, but that's true of everything. I think like following a cookie cutter recipe for online business, it can work but it's not necessarily going to and that's like i don't know applying the same branding to everything like all sorts of projects that are very different to from one another or you know it's like taking a mold and trying to um, put everything through that mold ultimately it's not going to work for everything and i think people who are trying to sell a template for um, successful online businesses it's in their interest to craft a narrative that this is the best way to do it and you have guaranteed success with it because they have a program or something that they want to sell you i inevitably start thinking about apps like tiktok or like now instagram or uh, youtube when people use the same track music track and then almost like the same set of movements, for example, and then suddenly everyone does that. And that pretty much copy-pasting <laughs> different human beings. Definitely. And then there's kind of a uniformization of what you see online. And if you are then algorithmically fed what is successful, and if that's like always the same thing or the same trends, And it's almost, I think, not just modeling the information that you have access to, but also, aesthetically speaking, modeling your taste. So is it healthy or it's more unhealthy? Do you mean like whether algorithmic feeds are healthy or not? Yeah, something like, you know, offering people to, for example, use this track and then do this movements, do this TikTok, publish it, and you'll be one of a million of people who just did the same thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe some of them, they got like viral attention and get like a thousand followers within one night or like one hour. So this kind of background, I don't know how to call that, like, uh, is it digital noise or what is this? <laughs> like this uh-huh. It's like algorithmic dictation of the behavior for masses. I find it hard to say straight away that is it unhealthy. But I don't think it is healthy. I think it's somewhere in the middle where what's important is being aware of how it works, how it influences ourselves and how it might influence us on a broader cultural societal level. And then knowing what 
other ways we have to digest information and access art and beauty and yeah, information in general. May I ask you to talk a little bit more about how exactly it influences us, what is happening right now on the internet in terms of like the algorithms and us as human behavior? For decades, we've had say fashion magazines kind of saying, oh, this is trendy right now. Maybe in terms of how we dress or what makeup we use or a lot of things like showing what fashion is at the moment. Mm -hmm. But the difference with phone is first, it's always on you. It's not a magazine that sits on your table and that you might open, I don't know, once a week or something. It's much more um, pervasive in our lives. Another difference is I think it accentuates trends or the importance given to trends and the time we spend looking at trends in our daily lives. You know, the fact that these trends are way more present in our lives and if that's the first thing we want to see in the morning when we wake up and the last thing we want to see like in bed right before we fall asleep, it's like accessible and we can spend all our time really absorbed into this. I think there's also a lot more pressure, for instance, if you look at young adults and teenagers, a lot more pressure to conform and also maybe a more damaging comparison you can be very easily excluded if you if you don't follow the latest trend if you are not aware of the latest thing that happened on social media and it affects teens mental health i think because it is way more pervasive than it used to be yeah it's like um, the absence of boundaries right with your phone and the access to the information is just permanent yeah, yeah. And something that also goes with it is that, well, the, the goal with which content is pushed to us is so that we spend more time on social media and we keep scrolling. So if something doesn't have a lot of potential to keep us on the app, then it's less likely to be shown to us. Mm -hmm. um, but within that, it's very highly personalized. For each individual, what is most likely to make them spend more time on the app is different, right? And while the goal is the same, the content in itself can vary a lot. And you might live with someone or live right next door to someone. And literally you sleep like two meters away from each other, separated that one by, by one wall. <laughs> but... What you see on your phone can be very, very different. And now I'm not just talking about aesthetic trends, but political information, for instance, or any kind of news. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's so personalized. Only had, you know, newspapers or TV, you could see what someone else is reading or listening to. And, you know, you would be able to maybe have a conversation with them and find some sort of common ground, or at least even if there is no common ground, like exchange about these topics. But now it's on someone's phone. Mm -hmm. It's way less easy to see from, um, you know, for another person. It's also way more present. It's always on you, basically. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting observation, which you just gave us. I just imagine that 
picture of human beings living next to each other, but no longer related to each other because they are connecting through the internet in the digital world. So they are like connected with other people in the digital space, but at the same time, they are not connected to their neighbors, to the closest people who live next to them. And I'm curious, what kind of dynamic in the society can that create when you don't know your neighbor, but you have your followers or like best friends on uh, Instagram or Twitter who are like hundreds of kilometers or maybe even like thousands of kilometers away from you? Yeah, exactly. It's fascinating. So your closest ties might actually be completely independent of your geographical situation, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's that personalized, but not so visible, you don't know what's going on on your neighbor's Facebook feed, also means that it's very fertile ground for um, misinformation and for very, very polarized views on all sorts of things. Why would that be the soil for the misinformation? I think because it's gated in a way. You don't really see what they see. And they might be fed that um, the earth is flat <laughs> all over their social media. But if you don't see it, you can't talk about it with them. You can't confront opinions and studies and experiments and facts and potentially debunk it. Have you ever met a flat earth believer? Not that I know of. I actually met one. Oh, please tell me about it. <laughs> um, I was in New York City in Brooklyn, just uh, writing in my journal in a cafe. I think yeah, I actually was working on a laptop because it would be for hours. And sometimes I would go outside for like stretching, you know, walking a little bit before I jump back. And so I walked outside and there was a guy with a camera and he's like, hey, I'm a photographer, blah, blah, blah. So long story short, we we're talking about fashion and photography and everything is great. And then a plane passing by. And out of nowhere, he points at the plane and says, do you see this plane? I'm like, yeah. Where do you think it's going? I'm like, I don't know, Hawaii? He's like, no, no, no. Where do you think it's going? Around the earth or on the edge of the earth? <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> and actually, I decided to listen to him because I've never encountered a flat earth believer. And the whole explanation was so logical, although I forgot a lot of details. But something about how the rain drops down and uh, because um, the paddles are flat, meaning that the ocean is flat too, something like that, that the gravity <laughs> is just going um, in a one direction. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and then I just asked him to provide me the sources. Um, like, hey, could you please maybe send me a couple of, you know, scientific papers on this topic and he sent me only one book and that's it <laughs> and it was just like uh, some crazy i guess uh, manipulator i don't know of a thought or maybe a true believer <laughs> who wrote the book and this book was debunking a lot of uh, scientific evidence mm -hmm. and only based on this book if i understood correctly lots of flat earth believers built their belief system um mm -hmm. yeah but it's crazy <laughs> 
So if you have a neighbor who is slowly getting trapped into believing that the earth is flat and then the algorithms are kind of almost like soaking him into this, if you knew your neighbor, you could have actually helped him or her, right? But then if you don't know a neighbor, you can't help. And a person is just like basically surrounded by the misinformation eventually. Yeah. And then disconnects from the community like the community i mean the real community which is based on the geographical existence of people rather than the communities online Let's maybe jump back to digital well-being. Um, maybe if you could just explain for some listeners who might not know what is digital well-being. Digital well-being is using your tech tools in the way that supports you best. Um, that might be for your mental health, for your creativity, productivity, you know, anything that you care about. Um, but not, you know, sticking to the default of how the device is built or the apps are built or the OS is built or anything like this, but rather, you know, making it work for you. And also one part of that is potentially changing the device or the software on it. And another part is more like how you use it yourself. Often it's like establishing some boundaries and, you know, having some sort of frame around how you use it so that it serves you in the best ways, but also it doesn't disrupt your goals or whatever you want to do that it might get in the way of. Why the, for example, phones are not working for you to begin with? So what's happening there? Um, well, the business model of someone who makes a phone or an app, like they're not going to be paid based on your well-being, basically, <laughs> unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so their goals and your goals might be aligned, but they might also and often are different. We spoke already about social media, so I could reuse that, that example or anything that is ad-based. They are going to be rewarded, like they're going to make money based on the time that you spend on that social media. That's their goal. And your goal isn't necessarily to spend a lot of time on social media. It might be to just um, get informed or stay in touch with friends or help grow your business if you're a business owner. So differently aligned goals, you know, the, the default of how apps are built is for one certain type of goal and your personal goal is something else, then their default might not work for you. Mm. The question is, so for example, on the other side, on the side of the app or platform, they have their own goals. I have, as a user, uh, my own goals. And if they're not aligned, how do we bridge them? There are several ways, but Mm -hmm. I think it always comes down to either changing something in the tool 
So that might be changing your app settings or replacing an app by another one that does the same thing, but that's less disruptive for you or something like that. Um, and if it's not changing the tool, it's changing how you use it. Mm-hmm. And that might be not keeping it in your bedroom at night or something else. But, you know, there is a limit to what we can change on the phone and or, or, or on our laptops or anything else, our um, connected watches. And when we reach that limit, then it's more about how we relate to the device itself, our habits around the device. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Um, how we use it, when we use it, when we don't. Because there's only so much you can do. You can uninstall an app, you can turn its notifications off or something else, but you can't completely change the way it's built. You can't always install another client that doesn't have advertising or something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is no another Instagram without advertisement, for example, or you even don't mm-hmm. have a choice to turn it off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm thinking about the improvements which have been done lately, right? For example, Apple definitely tried to implement time limits in the recent OSs, right? But then there is always this button, give me one more minute, give me 15 more minutes. (laughs) So give me another 15 minutes. I promise after that I won't go. So do, do you find this feature helpful or not i think they can be useful but they could be made even more efficient i believe for instance you know right now if you want to extend the time limit or just remove the limit altogether it's always the same taps that you have to do on your phone right there's nothing new so it can become an automate automatism something easy that could be implemented is like having to solve an easy multiplication or something like that. It could be something just hard enough that it forces you to pause to find the answer. And you can't just rely on the automatism anymore to remove or to extend the time limit. It could be just something like that or something else. But my point is right now, it's always the same tabs to do that. So if someone gets the habit to always extend their time limit, it's very easy for it not to be effective anymore. Yeah, I often just have to delete the app completely. (laughs) And before deleting it, uh, change the password, log out, forget the password, delete the app (laughs) 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 to create more steps between me and opening the feed. Sometimes I feel like this dopamine mouse, which was uh, pushing the button until it died, getting more pleasure, more pleasure, more pleasure. And then like, oh no, where is my two hours? <laughs> it's gone. Yeah, exactly. So in that sense, you had to change the tool so that it worked better for you. But it's why that we have to do it to the point of changing the password so that we would then forget it and then logging out and then deleting the app all of these steps because the incentives of the people who are designing the app isn't um, aren't aligned with our incentives. Some of my friends, it seems like they have healthier relationships with social media. And some friends are almost feel obliged to post every day. And I used to be that person posting every day, but then I took a break for two years. I felt that it was similar to quitting smoking. 
almost like the same parts of the brain were suffering and <laughs> just like demanding this stimulation. Eventually, it became so easy and I felt that the burden just left my shoulders that I no longer felt obliged to post anything and I felt so free. And I'm curious if that's just my personality or it's a common thing among people. I think it's a common thing because... Yeah, similar to quitting smoking, if, you know, social media and smoking trigger the same hormones, you know, when you quit either of them, you're going to have a drop in those levels, in the levels of those hormones compared to what you're used to. And maybe you're going to feel less satisfied than you used to. And maybe you're going to be a bit more grumpy, like you're, you're, um, you're going to be below your usual baseline. So I think it makes a lot of sense what you experienced, you know, that it was similar to quitting smoking. Are some people tend to be more addictive to, let's say, social media than others? I think there's a genetic component to addiction, but I don't know this topic well enough to say a lot about it. But yeah, you definitely have different levels of involvement. Um, and internet addiction has different, you know, criteria for the diagnostic, one of which is that you organize the rest of your life around it. Not not everyone is addicted, addicted, as in not everyone is going to match the criteria necessary for the diagnostic. Yeah. Let's say on one side, you're in full control of your tools and you feel very well and you live happily life where tools don't control you, you control the tools. And on the other side, would that be like the addiction? Like, let's say the opposite from feeling super well in control, or would that be something else? Yeah, I think you're correct. Because in that sense, then it's the time spent on the internet and on your devices that is going to control you. Two criteria of internet addiction that are also found in chemical addiction are tolerance. So the same level of use isn't going to produce the same satisfaction in you because you get used to it. Um, so you're going to have to do more and more and more to keep that baseline satisfaction. And the other one is withdrawal. So in the case of internet addiction, if you don't have access to your devices, you might feel anxious, you might feel um, upset, angry, irritated, something like that. And you might feel the craving, you know, to get your phone back or to get internet access back. Even if you do have your phone, but you don't have internet, you might feel that. So in that sense, you know, internet addiction, even though it's a behavioral addiction, it is very much an addiction. Mm -hmm. Do you work with the internet addiction as a coach? I don't because addiction is more of a medical concern mm. and coaches aren't health professionals and I think it's really important to make that really really clear and I talk about that with all my coaching clients yeah for something that is you know a medical topic a health topic coaches aren't properly trained for this and they're just not the right person to go to for this so yeah no I don't how do you understand when you can't help a person mm. and it's better to send them to another professional? Yeah, I think for me, the biggest line is whether they can control their internet use or not. 
And if it's like really completely out of hand and it's damaging either their, you know, studies or professional life or family life or anything like this, and it's like really impacting them negatively, but yet they can't stop or don't stop, then it's it's not just that it's out of my hands, that it shouldn't be in my hands. <laughs> Mm-hmm. No. Uh, do you like examine a person before working with them? If you could share like uh, your workflow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So at the beginning of starting to work with a new client, I asked them about this type of things, whether they have any current addiction, um, but also other things that aren't linked to digital well-being, but more like if they've had any suicidal thoughts recently. If they are in an abusive situation, whether it's at home or somewhere else, you know, I have a list of questions that I ask them and, you know, that's going to help me see if I'm a right person for them or if they should be with a health professional. So you would use like heuristics, right, to understand like if the person is in control of their lives and then you can help them, right? Yeah, exactly. I I asked some questions like that, you know, more specifically about the, their digital life. I'm going to see based on, you know, the situation that they describe. And when I ask them, okay, what, what do you want out of coaching? What do you want help with? They're going to describe what their situation is. And I mean, it's always been very clear so far. Yeah. And then, you know, something else that is telling Sometimes I haven't had that case so far, but um, I know that sometimes it can happen is when you see that clients can't in a way like stick to their commitments and stick to their appointments and that there is something really, really disruptive in their lives that they they make appointments, but they regularly miss them and something like that. So, you know, it's not just first degree what the client is telling you, but also what you interpret and what you can see in their behavior. What do you do as as a digital well-being coach and what do you work with? I've had different topics that come up quite regularly in clients. A really important one is around boundaries with work. I've, I've chatted with a lot of people who often work from home and mm-hmm. struggle to focus and check their messages or emails every 15 minutes and multitask a lot. Um, jump from one thing to the next and so they can't really do deep work or are on social media a lot at the same time that they're supposed to be working and so either they end up really being really stressed out to meet their deadline or it takes way longer and their work day extends completely into the evening and it's you know boundaries are completely blurred um, so that's something that's come up very very often another topic has been content consumption online, feeling like you have this whole backlog of bookmarks or new online courses, new articles, newsletters, videos that have been 
published and you want to go through all of it and it almost feels like you're guilty of not being up to date if you don't mm -hmm. or you feel really pressured of not you know of having this accumulated backlog and so that's also something that's come up quite often how to frame that in a way that's useful for you and that honors what you want to do in life and where you want to spend your time without making you feel this kind of guilt or pressure that serves no one and does nothing. Wow, I actually never thought about this existed problem with the content consumption. When you described that, I thought about if someone, you know, buys trendy or whatever, like uh, clothes, and then at some point doesn't know what to wear and gets super anxious. And you just need to declutter the whole closet <laughs> to understand what you have. Is that somehow connected to the fear of missing out? Yeah, I think it can be, definitely. I don't know if that's the case all the time, but yeah, I think it can be. Um... Blurred boundaries is a very interesting topic too. Does the digital world have boundaries? That's a good question. What would those boundaries be or look like? If you have a battery on your phone and there is no charging station around you, do you run a desert? <laughs> yeah. Are these boundaries or limits? Ah, uh, what's the difference between limits and boundaries? Well, to me, limits is inherently pejorative. It's like something that is suboptimal um, but a boundary can be something very deliberate that you decide to enforce yourself mm, so like limits are predisposition you can't really change that but boundaries is something what you have control over yeah i think so and also limits you might be able to change them and improve something but it is seen as something i think negative like a negative facet of a tool it's limited, right? When you say that something is limited, it's rarely mm. an asset that it's limited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought about the body-mind connection, like how the mind has no limits, but let's say the body has obvious limits. It needs to sleep, it needs to pee, it needs to eat, mm -hmm. it needs to breathe, right? The shortest limit. If you don't breathe for five minutes, you're dead. Mm -hmm. But mind, it's very broad. It can work and work and work and work. At some point, it might start glitching, but maybe there are limits in the mind, but they're not that obvious as with the biological function of our human walking, you know, performing bodies wow sorry that's so interesting what, what you say because um i see the mind as really limited oh really okay <laughs> in some ways yeah yeah so now i'm i'm lost thinking about all of this oh please talk about that i'm i'm really curious well i'm thinking for instance in you know attentional limits or memory limits you know it's like we can't run many things simultaneously in our minds. So it's like cognitive limitation. Yeah, but then, you know, that's the eternal question. Is that part of the body since it's the brain or is that a mental limit, limit of the mind? <laughs> to go back to what you were saying about the limits of digital tools, mm -hmm. I think there are some limits such as, as you said, battery life, memory, power, Again, like we were talking about the amount of things that we can run simultaneously. There's also a limit in our devices to that. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, um, I actually got stuck a little bit also on the discussion about the brain and the mind and the limitations, mm -hmm. like the cognitive limitations. So the brain is the part of the body 
meaning that's the body, whereas what is the mind? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm trying to maybe think a little bit more about what I meant about like unlimited mind, because I agree with you that we cannot remember everything. That would be abnormality, right? If someone remembers everything Mm -hmm. or can have access easily to any memory, that would be almost impossible to live a normal life. But what I meant about the, I think, unlimited mind is how it's impossible to touch or sense it. So something like you can't smell it, you can't like hate it. Like, yeah, you can damage your brain for sure. (laughs) But um, in terms of mind, the consciousness, so a fantasy or like a thought. So that feels very vast. And inevitably, with my limited knowledge, I want to compare that with the uh, vast uh, capacities of the internet too, which has like, you know, it, it feels vast. It feels like unlimited in that sense, because again, I can't really smell it. I can't really touch it. Mm-hmm. And if I start writing something, let's say free writing, just no sense writing, I can just write and 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 write until my physical body will be exhausted and will need to take a break. So I think that's what I meant. I can't quite frame it, right? Because again, cognitive limitations are there. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it might feel like vast. And I feel like in order to tell yourself stop, like stop working, for example, like right? start reading or stop like writing, you almost have to make this choice for yourself not to burn out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's even more true if you tend not to be super high in self-awareness and in awareness of, you know, your levels of energy and how much more you can do within a day or a week. If you work with clients and you do the coaching, it's less physical, but it still requires a lot of mental capacity, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So there would be also like the limit for clients you can work with per day. Yeah, there definitely is. That's something I already had in my old job, I want to say, when I was a UX researcher, um, doing user tests and user interviews is so cognitively demanding because you have to pay attention to so many things, what you're saying, how you're saying it, what they're saying, what they said previously um, during the test, what they're not saying, but that you notice or yeah, that you notice that they don't understand X or Y, even though it's not something that they say explicitly, but you understand it from their behavior. It's so, 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 so demanding. And coaching is very similar in that sense. So I couldn't do like seven sessions a day or something like that. Which boils down that, yeah, the mental capacity is limited, right? Yeah, and you just need to recharge, definitely. I don't know how people who are like full-time psychologists or something similar do it. Probably years of training help, but for me it's, it's too draining to do something like that full time. Yeah. For me, it's impossible to work like full time yoga teacher. No. <laughs> The way we use the information and the way we connect 
with the information on the emotional level. What is happening there? If you could maybe talk a little bit more about the emotional, let's say, interaction with digital tools. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. And I think it's something that isn't very well known. Um, but not all emotions are felt at the same speed. You have emotions that arise very, very fast, like physical pain, anger, fear, joy. And you have other emotions that take slightly longer, not very, very long, but something that builds slower, like admiration, like empathy, shame, gratitude, pride, guilt, that builds more over time. The risk of media that goes very, very fast, um, like you can have on social media, but not only, is that you don't give yourself the time for these emotions to build up and you miss out on the opportunity to feel them. Mm -hmm. And they are important emotions because they allow you to reflect on yourself, to understand yourself better, to understand your behavior better, and to relate to your peers, um, to feel admiration for them, to feel empathy for them. And that's how you build a personality. That's how you build your individual characteristics and your values. And that's how you inform your values. So the risk of, you know, not feeling these emotions because jump from story to story or from post to post on a social media feed or from YouTube video to YouTube videos and everything go very, goes very, very fast is that you're not going to develop your inner world and your values as much as you could have if you had given these emotions the time to build up. Would you say that like on the shallow surface, emotional shallow surface, we would experience like, fear, joy, anger, physical pain, right? And then on the deeper level, something what needs more time, it's uh, love, guilt, compassion, uh, admiration, shame, gratitude, pride. Yeah, exactly. If I remember correctly, um, for admiration and empathy, the number is seven seconds to start feeling them. And obviously physical pain or anxiety, anger are way faster than that. Why would someone want to deliberately experience something like shame or guilt? Well, there is a point to which, you know, in some cases it's useless, but it does tell you something. It tells you what you value. It can tell you what you want more of in your life. It can, you know, guide your future behavior. It is useful to know because that's how you're going to build yourself. Um, and it's going to inform your yeah, future behavior. Oh, I like that. Um, I can't not to think about the context of the war in Ukraine mm -hmm. because I'm coming from Russia. I immigrated many years ago, but still I'm exposed to this information and I see that lots of my friends from Russia are going through the stages of shame and guilt. And maybe, thanks to you right now, I'm thinking maybe it's because the information is there. It's been there for a half a year and it's, it's still there. <laughs> and because of this exposure, it's not just like a quick story although it might be a quick story but then it might pile up into a lot of stories that exposure to this information allowed this emotions to be processed 
and then turn into, let's say, deliberate actions to help Ukraine, for example. Yeah, that might be very true. I, I do think that sometimes you have guilt that is useless or shame that is useless. Useless not in the sense that it doesn't tell you anything, but in the sense that you can't do everything and care about every single issue on earth and influence every single topic on earth. So there's a degree to which it's useful where it pushes you to take action and seek change actively, seek and contribute to change. And then, yeah, maybe there's a degree to which the only usefulness is going to be, oh, now I know that I care about this topic, but I'm already doing a lot of things and I've reached uh, my maximum capacity. <laughs> hmm. Is there anything you want to share that maybe I didn't ask and you want to talk about? Yeah, I want to talk about the bigger picture. Like all of these things about boundaries and using your tech tools in ways that actually work for you and really serve you and all of this. Um, it seems like just very concrete and something on an individual level. The thing is, the idea behind it is a way bigger picture. Like if all of us can use our time in the way that works best for you and our attention and energy in the ways that work best for us, mm -hmm. and you know that we can be more informed and less victims of you know misinformation or being more critical thinkers maybe and being able to recognize it. I think all of this transforms into improvements, not just at the individual level anymore. We're going to be more creative in our solutions to all sorts of issues. We're going to, you know, innovate more. Um, it's going to lead to more collaborations, more art, more, you know, completely novel solutions to all sorts of things. That's the the bigger picture and the bigger aim of it. But I think that the first step is like getting a hold of our everyday lives and then it can improve things on a much bigger level. And that's the bigger goal here. I feel like um, when a plane takes off and there is a kind of cloudy, noisy weather, so we have to go through the turbulence before we get above the clouds to the level where we can be almost in the in this spatial territory above the clouds. Maybe it's a wrong metaphor, but that's how I felt that we, we have to enter this ocean or like, for example, when you enter the ocean, the first waves are always pushing you back, right? And you have to learn how to jump under the wave, for example, so it doesn't hit you in your face. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and finally, learn how to swim and go beyond those first waves into a place where the ocean is already more like calm or at least it's just arising and falling but you are in full control finally because you went through this again turbulence right for like entering the ocean yeah and the question would be like what are these like let's say waves which are hitting you in your face when you're trying to enter this ocean i think for me attention management is a big one and anxiety management, learning how to avoid or even use those waves to your advantage so that then you can have more autonomy, almost more freedom, you know? 
So, for example, an anxiety management would be the tool you can use for, let's say, the swimming technique, right? Uh, or like breathing technique. But what would be the waves themselves? What would be those things interfering with our ability to go beyond the like disturbance? Or let's say something what comes to my mind is that like the current tendency for lots of platforms to extract profit from users rather than providing them ways of communicating with each other? Or would it be something else? Um, yeah, I think it, there is something to that, but I think it's not that platforms want to extract profit or like be profitable. It's that incentives aren't aligned and goals aren't aligned. Mm -hmm. And that creates, I think, a wave. Mm. Yeah, that means that the default of what we're using isn't working in our best interest and that we have to tweak it. I actually like that idea of the ripple happening because there is disalignment that's happening, right? Mm -hmm. And so the ripple becomes the wave. I like that, yeah. And I really liked your metaphor of the plane and then being above the clouds. And I want to add to that metaphor in, in that to first take off and then reach above the clouds, you have to burn some fuel mm -hmm. and you're not going to get there without some sort of investment and without burning this fuel to start with. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what coaching helps with, helping you burn the fuel so that then you're, you can be in cruise mode and having more agency, more autonomy over um, what you do. Mm -hmm. So that's for individual and also collective, right? I think that's mostly a metaphor in my mind that works on an individual level, mm -hmm. but it then transforms to a bigger picture, definitely. Mm -hmm. I think the best thing we can do for ourselves is give ourselves more autonomy, more agency, and more, more freedom and speak to each other instead of being confined into information bubbles or anything like this just actually speaking to each other and exchanging on different topics. And it's not going to solve everything, but there's no way forward, in my opinion, if you don't talk about things and if you don't like really confront ideas in that way. What would be the first step to that for our listeners who want to take a path on the improvement of their relationships with digital tools and internet? What would be the first step, maybe one, two? One thing that I really like to recommend a lot is having an assessment of how your tech is serving you and isn't serving you. And there's lots of ways to do that. You can like take notes throughout the day of what's working for you and what isn't. And then at the end, you have a little journal or you can just like block half an hour and sit down and go through all your apps and everything and write down what's working for you, what isn't, and all of that. Mm -hmm. It's going to give you an overall picture of your current state of affairs. And on your tech tools, you might be looking at how it helps or doesn't help with your health, um, with your finances, how it helps you professionally, how it helps you in your personal relationships with your closed ones, how it helps you with leisure or learning something new mm -hmm. in all of these fields then you're going to have um, a distinction between what serves you what doesn't and all of that so you have a lot of things that you can look at well our listeners prepare notepads 
and your phone. I actually like this idea of using a notepad and just uh, write down with your hand rather than doing it on your phone, because now the subject of the research is your phone. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. let's examine this thing, which I'm wearing with me every time. Would you recommend sometimes not using your phone at all? Yeah, absolutely. It depends what your goal is, but in a lot of cases, it It's nice and even something like not using it for 24 hours or something like that can be a nice break. I think especially for people who work on screens and who spend a lot of time with screens, getting some time off of screens is really nice. Not just, you know, to protect your eyesight, <laughs> but getting a proper break every now and then, that's, that's really nice. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of studies confirming that uh, connecting with the nature or staring at the horizon, uh, if you have the ocean next to you, that it's like relaxing the whole systems and increases like endorphins and stuff. Yeah, being in nature helps a lot, in part because you don't have as much stimulation as on a screen or in, you know, a busy city. Mm -hmm. It's way calmer. You don't have to be very alert all the time watching for bikes and cars and everything mm -hmm. but it has yeah a lot a lot of benefits mm -hmm. and living in the city because i used to live in new york city and i felt that i'm addicted to the city itself <laughs> new york city was my heroine and it was really <laughs> difficult to leave the city but when i left it finally i felt liberated <laughs> like wow beyond new york city there's the whole world of possibilities. So New York City is not the only city on earth. Um, but I'm curious if being constantly in this mode of alertness, like for example, looking for a car potentially hitting you or a bike running at you or some crazy people just shouting at you on streets. So these aspects, can they be in a way addictive or not or not even addictive but like stimulating in a way that you kind of want to be exposed to those dangers i guess they could i could see how that would work um i haven't really heard of it apart from what you just said <laughs> but yeah you can just enjoy a high level of stimulation yeah i could see how that that might be the case for some yeah addicted to cortisol <laughs> <laughs> I remember there was this idea that cortisol in small amounts is actually really helpful. For example, for sportsmen to achieve their goals, they need the stress hormone to help them to achieve the goal. Mm -hmm. But then if you're overly exposed to that, then yeah, it's too much. And then you get depressed eventually, or like the whole systems are getting disaligned with each other because you're just in constant permanent state of stress. It reminds me of, you know, flow theory. Mm -hmm. Um, and how to really get in the flow, you do need to be doing something somewhat challenging. If it's too challenging, you're not going to get there. But if it's too easy for your skill set, you're also not going to get into flow. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe there's this, you know, balance and how like some level of stress is useful and no stress at all or no tension at all as useless as a lot, lot, lot of stress. Yeah, that's what it, it makes me think of. Nature can be also stressful. <laughs> If you're really lost in the wild, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for today's conversation. Could you please share with our listeners where can they find you and connect with you? 
Thanks a lot too for this conversation. And you can find more about my work um, at thistooshallgrow.com. Um, that's my website. Uh, you can also find my newsletter there, which is called Digital Wellness. Um, and otherwise, you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn, if that's your jam, <laughs> um, where my name is Chloe S. Wonderful. And I'll put all the links in the description of this podcast. Please check them out. Thank you that's all for today check out links in the description of this episode to find out more about Chloe's work and if you enjoy listening to the slowing down podcast and want to receive updates from me your host consider subscribing to my newsletter on my website janaslow.com j-a-n-n-a-s-l-o-w.com this podcast was mixed at AudioZ Studios in downtown Montreal, Canada. Visit AudioZ.com for more information. The music is composed by Remy Sili, a.k.a. Klatu. Find his tunes on soundcloud.com slash Klatu, Apple Music or Spotify. Thanks, everyone, and until the next time.